this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast this is g sampath your host for today's episode on november 2nd chinese tennis player peng shuai shared a post on microblogging site weibo accusing a senior communist party leader zhang gaoli of sexual assault the post was immediately censored and there has been no news about peng shuai since then peng who was ranked world number 1 in doubles in 2014 is the first ever chinese player to reach the number 1 ranking in tennis and is a big star in china the women's tennis association wta which runs the women's uh, tour and several tennis stalwarts from chris severt to novak djokovic and now uh, naomi osaka have expressed concerns about peng's whereabouts and safety They have also called on Chinese authorities to investigate her allegations. Zhang, a former member of the Politburo Standing Committee, China's top decision-making body, is 75 years old, and it is not often that senior party members face public accusations of wrongdoing. So, who is likely to face repercussions over these allegations? Is it going to be Peng herself for going public about a party official, or will it be Zhang Gaoli for causing embarrassment to the party? and where does the chinese communist party stand with regard to feminist politics and the me too movement we look for answers to these questions from anand krishnan the hindu's china correspondent anand welcome to infocus and thank you so much for joining us thank you so much sampath for having me anand uh, to start off with can you share a little bit about what we know so far of what has happened since peng shuai put up that post on weibo Absolutely um as you rightly uh, explained in terms of what exactly happened i think a lot of us uh, here in china were pretty shocked to see the messages very late in the night on november 2nd on weibo which is kind of like a twitter that's used in china twitter of course is blocked in china and there it was really very sort of heartfelt post by pang where she kind of narrated this whole experience of how she met Jiang Gaoli who as you said was for 5 years in on the Politburo Standing Committee he was a seventh rank leader in China and she sort of went on to detail how she had met Jiang when uh, he was the party boss in Tianjin a city near Beijing and she makes it quite clear that initially their encounter began in a way that she did not give consent for she kind of explained how kind of sordid it was that Jiang Gaoli's wife was involved as well in terms of inviting her to their home before he attacked her and then she kind of actually i think why it struck a chord sampath one of many reasons is it was a very sort of self reflective and uh, honest kind of post where she speaks about how she had very complicated feelings for this man the fact of how the relationship began clearly it was very clear that he had abused his his position even though that uh, it was quite shocking that this was in 2011 the year she first met mr jiang was when she was a well known figure and at that point she was actually a career high rank of 14 in women singles she would later become number 1 in doubles as well so she was very well known and it kind of i think shocked people in china that you have party leaders acting with such impunity even when it's someone in her own right who's so well known as peng shuai and that kind of i think really gets to the core of why people were so flabbergasted by this we can talk about the censorship as well sampat but of course this message that i'm talking about it only survived for 30 minutes on weibo and then it vanished 
Uh, and But by then, of course, everyone knew this was the biggest talking point in China throughout that week of November 2nd. Uh, but of course, it's been 15 days now, Sampat, and the troubling thing right now is that there's just been complete silence about this case in the 15 days since. Right. Speaking of uh, censorship, I mean, you said that just now that it was the post was up only for uh, 30 minutes or so. But then, uh, I mean, I've read some reports saying that it's been a bit of a very extreme censorship. They've even uh, block, blanked out hashtags like tennis and so on, keywords like tennis, uh, in order to censor this. No, absolutely. I think there's always been some amount of control over information, even with the Me Too movement when it took off in China, with allegations by students and other people in about starting in 2018. There was some amount of censorship, but nothing of this sort, where it's pretty much blanket censorship because of the fact that obviously you had a former Politburo Standing Committee member. Uh, John Gowley, of course, is now retired and he's no longer in the public eye. But the fact that it involved him was the obvious reason why there was such extraordinary censorship. But it also kind of is interesting in showing the limits of the censorship, because quite frankly, I think most people that I know, that I've been speaking to, have heard about this case. And throughout November 3rd and 4th, people were finding ways to talk about this using code words to evade censorship. For instance, people were posting screenshots, uh, which are kind of harder to be removed. And when those screenshots were being deleted as well, people were kind of flipping the screenshots and posting them. People were using code names and code words that sounded like uh, Peng Shui, but not really using the Chinese characters for her name. So people were finding ways to get around this. And I, I think in a very strange way, Sampath, I think the censorship further fueled curiosity about this case. Uh, the China Digital Times, uh, which is based in Berkeley and kind of tracks internet trends in China, had a very interesting statistic. They said in the first 34 minutes that in the 34 minutes that the post survived, it was shared about a thousand times, which is a lot, but not a huge amount. But after it was deleted, I think in the next couple of days, they found that it was searched for 6.74 million times. So the censorship kind of led people to even look up this case. And I think that the story kind of died down because of that censorship. But now I think it's going to be reignited because you've had high profile tennis players. Uh, as you mentioned at the start of this podcast, finally, two weeks on, they've begun to express concerns about Peng Shui. And I think that's going to bring the story back into the public attention again. Right. Yes. I mean, speaking of uh, comments and statements from figures in the tennis community, I mean, it, it's not just the players themselves, uh, such as Djokovic and Osaka, even the, the tennis body, uh, WTA uh, has issued a statement, official statement uh, asking for investigations into these allegations and also for some clarity on uh, on the whereabouts of Pang. So do you think this kind of pressure from the international tennis community on China, will it really work? Will the party uh, really be concerned about its image enough to sort of be seen to be doing something about it? I'm not sure if it will work, uh, Sampath, only because of the fact that it's a Communist Party high-ranking leader. But uh, quite frankly, if I can bluntly speak, even though as reporters, sometimes we tend to not be blunt, I think it's good that the WTA and the ATP put out these statements. And, and frankly, my expectations were so low in how they were going to handle this because of the fact that whether it was the, whether it's the NBA in terms of basketball or whether it's whether it's even uh, football leagues, uh, they have been craven, is the word, when it comes to the China market uh, out of fear of offending the Chinese government and Chinese uh, authorities that they've 
that they've just refused to speak out about anything. I think you've seen that, for instance, even with uh, Mesut Ozil, in Arsenal, uh, the former player at Arsenal, who found himself ostracized and under pressure for speaking out about Xinjiang, for instance. And you've seen that with NBA players. And I think that, frankly, I would have thought that they would just keep quiet because of those considerations. So I think it, it surprised me, but I think it's a welcome development that uh, the tennis world is speaking up for one of their own, who has obviously been through a very, very, very difficult period in her life for the last few years, ever since this began, for the last 10 years or so. Uh, and for someone who is now being silenced in her own country, uh, who is not being allowed to speak about this. So I think it's, uh, I think it's really the right thing for them to speak out. Uh, regardless of whether it changes the Communist Party's actions. I think what it will do, Sampath, is it certainly will be at least some amount of pressure on them that uh, whether they were planning to take repercussions on Peng Shui, maybe they will think twice about this now. Silencing her is one thing, but then I know people who are concerned that make, I mean, if they took it to another level and maybe press charges on her, it's happened with some others in the Me Too movement in China, where, for instance, they were they were faced with defamation lawsuits. And now that you're, this is a unique case, given that it had the Communist Party of China involved, there was a concern that they would take actions much further than just this blanket censorship that would threaten Peng Shui's safety. Uh, so I think them speaking out would be at least a small step uh, in at least letting the Chinese authorities know that there's international attention on this case and that international tennis players from Djokovic to Naomi Osaka have actually spoken out about it. And you'd expect more of them too, I think, going forward. It's been 15 days and no one really knows where Peng Shui is. Uh, her Weibo account is still, it's, it still exists, but it can't be searched for. So her Weibo account is being censored. And I think that as long as this silence continues, uh, I think you, you can expect at least Peng Shui's former colleagues on the tour to be extremely concerned and to, to speak up and speak out about it. Right. I mean, I was I was going to ask you about the response of the Chinese Communist Party, I mean, especially since you've been tracking the Chinese Communist Party for a very long time. But from what you've said so far, it seems to me that there is not going to be too much of doubt in terms of how they're going to respond. Is it, I mean, can we then expect that their default or reflexive response would be to uh, not so much as uh, look to sort of uh, move towards justice for Pang, but rather close ranks behind uh, Gauli and hope to quietly bury the issue? Is that what is the likely course of action they would be looking to pursue? I think that broadly speaking, Sampath, usually I think uh, if we try to sort of guess how they deal with such situations, I think the preservation of the party's image uh, and kind of stability of the regime is the abiding sort of concern more than anything else. I think that the only times where they would have been moved to actually take a case to censure a former leader is if there's a public outcry. We haven't seen the public outcry on the Peng Shui case uh, only because I think of the censorship that's been so extreme uh, over the last two weeks uh, that people really aren't. Uh, I think you have maybe in big urban centers, people who are kind of tech savvy, know how to get around the restrictions. Maybe they are following the case, but majority of people aren't really aware of it. So I think usually it's only when there's been like really pu big public outcry that they've been moved to change course on something. If I can give a completely unrelated example, two years, uh, you may have remembered at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, you had a doctor in Wuhan, Li Wenliang, who 
had actually warned in late December of an outbreak in Wuhan, but then he was actually uh, called in by the police authorities and made to sort of sign a confession statement, retracting what he was saying about this kind of cover-up that was happening. And that was where the matter lay. But when he when he died from COVID-19 two months later, there was such a big public outcry that the Communist Party changed tack on that case. They kind of made local authorities apologize for how they handled him. And then they sort of resus- they sort of rebranded Lee Wen Liang as someone who was a loyal sort of communist and someone who was a national hero. And that was because you had this huge wave of public anger when he died and people came to know about how he had been treated. So it's only, I think they would do it reluctantly when forced to sort of confront public anger. But I don't think they would do it in the current situation where they don't really have pressure to deal with the Peng Shui case. It would change if there was international outcry. If you had, obviously, we've seen a couple of statements now from top tennis players, but these are just single statements. I think what would be different is if there was a sustained sort of effort by them to keep attention on this case and to ask questions about Peng Shui's whereabouts. Uh, If that sustained sort of attention was there, then maybe they would be moved to deal with this. The other point, of course, Sampath is... Zhang Gaoli doesn't have a public office. He's now retired. So it's not that he can be removed from a post or he can't be fired. And I think that given that he went to to the highest levels of office, they would be reluctant to kind of, whether it was to allow a case to be made against him, I think that's extremely unlikely. Uh, Just to bring in one interesting view of uh, Lu Pin, who is a Chinese feminist writer, uh, and she wrote a little bit about this case. And I think the reason I think she hit the nail on the head about why the Communist Party would be reluctant to sort of confront this because she said, because people find her story so real, because everybody knows that it must be true. They know officials have used their power and exploited women, and that's been kept hidden in the dark. And because of the fact that it's so believable, I think that's the reason why they'd be so sort of concerned about having this publicly litigated. Right. Yeah. In in general, uh, you know, the communist ideology, I mean, I'm speaking very generally here, not specific to the Chinese Communist Party, but the communist ideology accords a great deal of importance to equality and gender equity and so on. So given the nature of Pang's allegations, is this something that is known to happen in China? Because you also mentioned that the party is sometimes sensitive and responsive to public outcry, as in the case of the doctor from Wuhan. So where a powerful male party member uh, is doing something like this, is it typically the case that he can expect to get away with it or is this something rare? So I think it's a it's an interesting question because if you look at even the Communist Party of China, I think what you said was broadly true. If you go back to the 1940s and 1950s, it, was, it did play a huge role uh, in terms of women's rights movement in China. Uh, if you go back to the kind of a feudal society that China had in the 1920s and 30s and the position of women in that society. The reason why so many women joined the communist movement in China in the 30s and 40s and beyond that was because it had a very sort of strong message on equality. Uh, I know it's a cliche to say this now, but everyone sort of quotes uh, Mao Zedong saying women hold up half the sky. But it was true that uh, the communist movement, at least in China, did put out that message that uh, women should be educated, women have the right to go to school uh, and to be treated on a par with men. Now, having said that, Sampath, that was in theory, but if you look at actually politics in China uh, and Communist Party politics in China has been male-dominated right from the get-go. All the top leaders, the general secretaries have only been male. The, percent, the sort of proportion of women in the Politburo 
the top 25 is very low. I think it's all it never it's never been more than one or two in the top 25. Uh, I think you've very rarely had a woman in the Politburo Standing Committee, which is the top seven or top nine. Uh, currently, there is no woman in the top in the Politburo Standing Committee. So what they've been saying, sort of rhetoric-wise, in history is different from the actual practice of power and politics in China. And you've actually had scholars who've tracked the feminist movement in China make the case that. In the reform era, in the 1980s and 90s and beyond, you've actually, it's been a mixed picture where the reform and opening up of China was great for women's rights in the sense that you had a huge number of women join the workforce. Labor force participation among women in China is far beyond what you have in India, no comparison. And with that, that's obviously brought a lot of independence for women that they didn't have previously. But at the same time, uh, you've, you've had a lot of Chinese uh, scholars say that there's been a bit of regression uh, in that. That, uh, in fact, that this sort of patriarchy that you've seen in politics, you see that in the business world as well, is making a comeback. It hasn't really gone away. Uh, and I think that's why when the Me Too movement sort of uh, came, into, came into its own in China in 2018, you had so many people speak out saying that, listen, there are so many structural uh, injustices that people really aren't speaking about. Uh, and they're sort of, sort of hidden in the system in China. And that's why a lot of people were, were drawn to speaking out about it. And also why Sampath, because of that, it largely fizzled out because it wasn't really allowed uh, to sort of spread in China. I think the, the sort of authorities have always been wary of allowing civil society movements to have a life of their own. They've allowed civil society movements to exist at their pleasure. So when I think what they did was when you had a few cases uh, in 2018, uh, students who began speaking out about their teachers, authorities were quick to react, like universities would immediately sort of fire a professor who faced multiple allegations. In 2018, uh, I think it was a bit of a surprise that the Communist Party, which controls the courts, also allowed the first Me Too case to go to trial. And this was a very high profile case that involved uh, one of the most well-known uh, sort of TV presenters on CCTV, the straight broadcaster, and someone who was so high profile that he was a member of uh, their version of the upper house of parliament. It's a different matter that this went to a court uh, and this man filed a counter defamation lawsuit and ultimately he won the case. Uh, the case against him was dismissed. But the fact that it went to court at least was a small step as far as many activists that I know that I was speaking to saw it, though, of course, they felt that she that uh, the accuser wasn't given a fair chance at all and everything was stacked against her. So to me, the main takeaway was in the way they've dealt with this Me Too movement in China kind of shows that they allow these things to have sort of modest space for a short amount of time to let people vent. But when they feel it's getting out of hand, they will very, very quickly clamp down and ensure that they have control over the narrative. Right. But it's very interesting uh, to hear about this entire Me Too movement in China because I'm, I don't think uh, very many people outside the region uh, have talked about it or are fully aware of the fact that China had its own uh, Me Too kind of a movement with uh, a case going to trial and so on. Absolutely. And just to add, Sampath, that it brought about so many stories from people in every sort of sphere. For example, Students were very common, and I can't tell you, I've heard of so many cases sort of just from my own interactions with students in China where uh, they've dealt with unpleasant experiences from uh, men in positions of power, whether it was their advisors, uh, and they just had to either ignore it because speaking out against their advisors would sort of jeopardize them even graduating or finishing their programs. And I've heard so many personal stories of that in universities in China, and there was no recourse to speaking out, which is why I think when, the, when they sort of opened the tap in 2018, you had so many students come out, academia was a very uh, big 
a source of these stories. Uh, the media was another, again, male-dominated here, and it's open secret that so many women in media houses in China were being hired, for instance, on looks and the like. And there was a very sort of uh, exploitative atmosphere in many of the newsrooms in China, and that came out as well. And I think that even in the private sector, uh, there was a very high-profile case about some of the practices at Alibaba, the tech company that all of us know about. And that brought out a lot of stories as well about the tech industry in China, which is another male-dominated industry, and the kind of sort of insensitive practices that go on there. And these companies have now, in the last few months, just this year, have been forced to say that they'll be much more sensitive uh, in the way that they deal uh, with their female employees. Even advertisements started circulating on social media showing that some of these tech companies were looking to hire male workers by saying, you know, you'll be working in an office with attractive women. It was as bad as that. And I think it has forced companies to sort of reflect on many of their practices, even though I think the, the government and the authorities have been very wary of letting this run. It has forced some amount of self self-reflection. So I'd say that in 2021, things are at least better off than they were three years ago when these things weren't even being spoken about. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. It is actually very uh, sort of interesting to note that before Pang Shui's web post going back to 2018, there is this entire context and history of a Me Too, Me Too movement happening in China. And then one tends to assume outside China that for something like a Me Too kind of mobilization or a campaign to happen, you assume democracy, you know. And here it's a one-party totalitarian state and for there and in a, in, a, in a kind of a system which is totalitarian to come up with this kind of, you know, posts and uh, outing of uh, patriarchal wrongdoings is something uh, which is really courageous and I think uh, it will be interesting to see how this develops further. Now, we're running out of time. One last uh, question, Anand. So, you spoke earlier about the fact that you were pleasantly surprised that the international tennis community and WTA and others have uh, come forward and issued bold statements expressing concern. Now, uh, we've seen what happened with Russia and how the West has responded to dope allegations in Russian, among Russian athletes and so on, and how uh, they were basically booted out of the Olympics. So, is there a possibility of uh, some kind of strong action in case there is no response to the concerns being expressed. Is there a possibility of a tennis boycott of China over the Pang Shui issue? Or is it more likely that business interests will kick in at some point? I think it's probably too early to say how this is going to go um, and whether or not. I think the first question that needs to be answered is uh, with people like uh, Naomi Osaka and Djokovic speaking out, not to mention the WTA putting out a statement, which is very, very symbolic, as you said, them being the highest body in tennis, uh, in women's tennis, whether this will prompt reaction from China. We'll have to wait and see whether they're going to just continue with this blanket of silence and hope this goes away. We have to wait and see. Uh, the other unanswered question is if China does continue this blanket of silence, uh, will there be a sustained effort from international tennis players and uh, tennis bodies? That's the other big question mark. So I think a lot of uncertainty is right now. And obviously, we should remember it's been 15 days, only been 15 days since her post. So we have to see where this goes. But a final point that I would say is that as you mentioned, in terms of the cases that have that have come out uh, in the open in China, Peng Shui is being the latest. In in many ways, I think it's it's happened uh, despite the system. I think that we've seen that they react if there's a big public wave of anger. But fact is that they've been doing their utmost to prevent 
having a public debate and public attention on these cases, and especially on Peng Shui's case, because the allegations went right to the highest levels of the Communist Party. Uh, and I think they don't want to have that uh, kind of dissection of, of the behavior of top officials. Even though uh, a final point, uh, Sampath, the big irony is that in the last four or five years, as you know, there's been this big anti-corruption campaign launched by Xi Jinping, and it has sort of ensnared very, very senior officials. And they make it a point to note when they bring down an official that they don't like or who is being corrupt or accused of corruption, very often they will point out that he's, they'll point out that he's been immoral or that he's a married man that had affairs with many women or that he used his position to take advantage of women. They would mention these things only in the case of officials who've already been purged. Uh, but in the case of someone who hasn't been purged, it's a very, very dis- sort of a very, very different hypocritical response, which is that, hey, no one has a right to speak about this. Right. That's very, uh, it's, of course, it's fascinating to sort of consider how these things play out. So, so in other words, what you're saying is if if the party were to acknowledge these allegations and take it seriously, it would also be in that case uh, indirectly acknowledging that this guy could be a corrupt man as well, right? Because that's how it works the, works the other way when, when, when somebody is corrupt and you also make allegations of immorality. Right. The difference being that usually happens after the fact. But here, of course, given that the allegations were made by somebody without the blessings of the party, you're seeing a very, very different response and the system trying to to shut this down. Right. Anyway, I mean, uh, one can only hope that we will soon get some clarity on Peng Shui's whereabouts and the fact that she's safe. And hopefully the Chinese authorities will be responsive to international pressure. And we hope that justice is seen to be done in this case. Thank you so much, Anand, for talking to us and for sharing your insights and comments on this issue. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Sampar. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.